Good morning. My name is Linda Keller, and I will be reading the scriptures today, as Chris just said, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And you will find that in your pew Bible on page, glasses on for this, 942. And I don't know about you, but I've already been so blessed this morning in this service to see these beautiful families and these children. And I just want you to know that I'm committing myself to these families to support them and encourage them however I can. I love their children. I love working with their children. And I support them and their families. And I hope every one of you makes that commitment to support each child and each family in this church. Because God not only gave those children to that family, he gave them to us. They are our family and our children too. So so join me in making that commitment. Now I will be reading, and after the conclusion of this beautiful passage, I will say to you, this is the word of the Lord. And the response that I'd like for you to make is, thanks be to God. And after I read this scripture, if you can't say that, you need to look at yourself and say, why can't I say thanks be to God? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has given, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we will also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, I'm grateful for our spiritual moms and grandmoms. Hey, let me uh, pray for us again, and then we'll dive into this text. Jesus, now would you come through your spirit and help us? We need hope. 
This passage talks about suffering. Um, it talks about our need for you. It talks about things you want to do in us. Um, and all of it kind of leads us to this spot where we just say we, we need your help. So would you help us not just understand it with our minds, um, but to engage it with our hearts? And then would you transform and would you change us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, quick introduction by way of hospitality. We're taking a break on our series through the book of Matthew to take a couple of weeks to talk about hope, both because we just changed our name to Hope Community Church as a church. So we have a long, beautiful 60-year history as a church, and recently we decided to shift our name to better reflect what God was already doing here at our church. And so we're just asking some questions about how do we live into that. So four weeks is not nearly enough to cover what the scriptures say. In fact, if you were to like just Google how many times hope shows up in the Bible, you'll see about 160 times. It'd actually be kind of fun for you the next couple weeks just to pull that down and maybe click on those and read through those and just let God encourage your heart. You'll see lots of application to hope. But we're just choosing to go, how do we think about hope for our past and talk a second about shame? How do we think about hope for where we are now in the present? Talk about some anxiety or some stress we're feeling. How do we think about hope for the future when we think about endurance and assurance for what's to come? And then let that actually move us to think about a hope that's worth sharing with other people. So those are the four weeks that we're going to do. Kids, I'm so glad that you're in the room and I'm bummed as well as you are that the kids' classes didn't happen uh, this morning. So you've got some kids' packets in there. Uh, so we have a fruit snack exchange program at our church. So there's some artwork in there that you can fill out. I'm also going to use three words to start with the letter P during my outline. So if you can hear those and write those down, you can turn that into a Mr. Rob will be in the back hallway and he will take your artwork and he will give you some fruit snacks. I also realize we've probably got some kids watching at home. So kids at home, so glad you guys are watching. I know it's challenging. I'm going to try to go a little bit faster than normal. I promise. But if you were to write a, those words down or maybe even draw a picture that you're thinking about as we go through this thing and your parents would take a picture of that and email it to me, I will email you a packet of fruit snacks. So that, that's a pretty good deal. So hang in there with us as we talk through this. I think it's actually for you as well as for your mom and dad because all of us need hope. I think that where we are in our world, like it's undeniable or there's no use in denying it anyway. Like, it is a stressful time. It's unprecedented in so many ways. Most of the people in our generation, even if there's things in history that have been like this, we've never experienced this. And so we're asking a set of questions, and actually a set of questions that are really tough without a foundation that a lot of us wish we had to set some of those tough questions on. And so to talk about hope is to talk about where, where we are as a culture, as a people, where you are individually, whether you're single or married, whether you're retired or you're still actively trying to figure out how to work in this environment, you're dealing with the need for hope. So that's always true, actually. It doesn't matter what country you're in or what time stamp you have. You're always in a space where you need hope. So, so it's just worth talking about. And as we talk about it, I want to invite you like, to, to hold on to the things that are clear and true. Here's what's interesting. I think even when we cheat a little bit to say, let's talk about hope in the past and present and future as if they're like really clear-cut categories. They're not really sharp lines between those. They, they blur together, don't they? So when you think about your present anxiety, it's tied to your past of places where you have loss and regret and shame maybe. Maybe places where you, you wanted God to do something and he didn't do it the way that you hoped he would. And so now you're facing a space where you're praying prayers for God to meet you, but you're not confident that he will because of your past. 
And that definitely shapes how you think about the future, right? So the, these blending together of our past and present and future is instructive to us as well to blend together like emotions and feelings that we have, right? So it's not just that we feel shame for the past. Some of us have like an abiding shame inside. And we should talk for a moment like about toxic shame versus kind of a redemptive shame. Last week when we were talking about shame, I wasn't talking about a kind of shame that, that would say about you there's something broken and unredeemable. Like, like you're never going to measure up, you're never going to be good enough. That, that kind of shame isn't the kind of shame that the Bible talks about. But there is a shame in the scriptures that says, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You're not acting the way you're supposed to act. If you're actually made in the image of God, dealing with other people made in the image of God, God wants something different for you. And the difference between toxic shame and redemptive shame is redemptive shame says, come this way. Here's what I want you to do about that. Here's another way for you to love and live and trust that would actually change you. Toxic shame just points a finger and leaves you there. Before we go any further, let's just stop and say, Jesus came into our world, took on flesh, walked in our shoes, in this broken space, so that you and I wouldn't be stuck and have to stay in our shame. He actually came to show us a way out, and not just through teaching and through good modeling, through his sacrifice on the cross where he paid the penalty for all the things that we feel shame for, he already died for those. So, so if we actually believe that, it, it now shapes our past where we have these longings and losses and spaces where we have regrets and that actually then changes how we think about where we are in the future. Because if God's forgiven the past, if he's covered over those things, then surely he could cover over what I'm facing right now. And that would actually give me some hope as well for what I'm going to face in the future. And so, so shame and anxiety and the need for endurance and maybe despair and pressure that you feel, it all kind of gets bundled up together. So do beautiful things like joy and faith and hope and love. They often come kind of in a bundle as well. So those can be kind of overwhelming, a little bit confusing, but I think if we can just acknowledge that they're kind of tied together, we can hold what is kind of complicated, and then we can ask God to give us clarity on what is not complicated. So you're going to go to your grave with a ton of questions. There's things about living in a fallen and broken world this side of Eden that are just really complicated. There's things you will not get answers to on the why questions that you ask about yourself, about other people, about about what God does in the world. So there's lots of things that are complicated. So where there's stuff that's really clear, where there's things that are not complicated and they're, they're certain and we can see them, they become amazing places for us to grip and hold on to and kind of tie those bigger questions to. So I'm going to have a million questions throughout my life. And if I can orient those mysterious, complicated spaces around what is true and certain, I have some sort of grounding. And so the Bible doesn't aim to speak to every question that you have. It doesn't name every anxiety that you feel. You won't find a verse about what you're dealing with in your job in the particulars. But what you will find are themes and promises and anchors that you can hold on to, to apply those particulars of your marriage, your singleness, your job, your health, your your future to. So in light of that, what I want to do is walk through this passage and and just say what is really clear and what is certain about this text. Now Romans 5 comes in the middle of a letter, so there's some context we should talk about, and it is like a beautiful, beautiful text. These 11 verses say so much. I bet you could read them 10 times and you would still be seeing new things and making new connections. There is a lot in this. And so I simply want to just name three things. I think as we walk through this text and we ask, 
How do we be a hopeful people? And we see the word hope show up several times in this text. We also see the word rejoice show up several times. So let's pull like hope and rejoicing together. And we're going to make three statements or three movements or three, three points. We're going to talk about hope coming from the presence of God with us. Hope coming from the plan of God with us. And hope coming from the provision that God has made for us. So kids, I'll say them again. The presence, the plan, and the provision. If you're like me, you need help spelling those. Your mom and dad could help you out with those. So the presence, the plan, and the provision. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. So it's just two verses. It starts with therefore. So we should just go back and say, what's he referencing? Throughout the book of Romans, what the author is dealing with is the issue of how do we walk with God by faith in light of Christ's sacrifice. And there's a struggle with like who are good people, who are bad people, who are in, who are out. How do we deal with the law? And what he's just said in chapter 4 is God has always dealt with us by faith. Even Abraham and David, they were first Justified, which means they were made right with God. It's a big word that means they were made right with God. They were made right with God by faith before they had ever done anything. So the order in the Bible is not do a bunch of things and then you'll be right with God. It's Christ has done for you everything you needed him to do to forgive you. So you're already right with God. Now from that place, live like he wants you to live. Love like he wants you to love. Sacrifice the way he wants you to sacrifice. Not to get his love or not to become justified, but because you already have it, right? Did you catch that? Since we have been justified, it's already happened. It's in the past. And what he's been saying is it wasn't by the obedience of the law. In fact, in chapter 3, he says there's nothing you could do in keeping of the law that would ever make you right with God. But... God's made a way through the sacrifice of his son to make us right with God. So he just says right out of the gate, hey, you have been justified by faith. And then he says, you have peace with God because of that. So you've been made right with God and you're at peace with him. And not because of what you've done. Did you see that? You're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through what Jesus has done. So you've been justified by faith, not by works. You've been at peace with God because of what Christ has done, and through him we have obtained access by faith. Access to what? Access into the grace that we now stand in, which is a relationship with God himself. So we've been justified by by faith. We have peace with God through what Christ has done, and we have access to God himself by faith, and we stand on that, and that brings about a rejoicing and a hope. I want you to see in those two verses the way he labors to communicate to you Your strong standing is not based on what you have done. It's based on your belief in what Christ has done. So when you think about your present situation that is so stressful and you're wondering, what do I do to get out of this? How do I fix this? How do I honor God in such a way that he'll he'll relent or change this? You start by saying he's already done all the work to set you at peace with him. And this word access is huge. I want to just zoom in there for a moment. What he's saying is all these things, justification and access and grace, those are relational terms. What Paul's saying is you have access to God himself. He's actually with you. Because of what Christ has done to pay the penalty for all of your sin, Christ is 
with you and you have access to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune God of the universe who is a relational God you have access to. So, okay, if we're asking about hope in times that we're in right now in the present and we're asking the question about anxiety, these two verses say you can face the anxiety of what you're dealing with right now with hope because you have the presence of God himself. In all of the chaos, he is there with you. Now, I don't know about you, but it makes a massive difference for me when someone is with me in the struggle, when I'm, when I'm not alone, when there's somebody who knows what's going on, somebody that I can, I can share with, somebody who's praying for me, somebody who's walking alongside, whether it's a team and we're trying to solve something together, or it's a church family and we're praying through something together, or it's in, it's in a marriage or in a close friendship, when you've got somebody with you, it radically changes everything. How much more to have the God of the universe, he says, through his spirit with you. You're, you're actually always in the presence of God. Now, now you might go like, I don't know if that's enough. Well, he'll say, he'll say more than that. But before we just rush past that, would you just let that sink in? You're never alone. And, and you're not just not alone trying to prove yourself or trying to figure out what you're supposed to do so that someone would love you. You're already justified. You're already welcomed. You already have access. You're already in grace by faith through what Christ has done. It's the difference that that person makes when they're with you, assuring you. Hey, kids, you know what it's like when there's a huge storm outside and you're pretty sure everything's going to come crashing in. And you've seen movies where like lightning strikes buildings and you're like, man, this could get really, really bad. And so maybe you cry out for your mom and dad. Maybe you don't actually cry or maybe you do cry. You just cry, hey, mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad. And one of your parents comes into the room and they hold you and they lay down in bed with you for a moment. And you're still crying, right? It hasn't stopped the storm at all. All that's still raging around you. You can see the lightning through your window. You can hear the thunder as it cracks. But your parent is there with you. And they hold you. And they keep saying, shh, shh, shh. Hey, Daddy's here. Daddy's here. It's going to be okay. And it doesn't make the storm stop, right? Your, your parents don't have the power to stop the storm. What they do, though, is they bring their presence with you so that you are not alone. And it doesn't fix everything, but it sure does change it, doesn't it? I mean, I know for, for me, calling out to my parents and having them come and be with me and just hearing them say, it's going to be okay, I'm with you, mom's here, dad's here. Okay, okay, take that moment, and even like if you're 80, can you remember those moments either with your kids or as a kid, and imagine hearing, shh, shh, shh Jesus is here. Hey, I know, it, I know, I know, I know, the Spirit is here. Hey, I know, I know it's really loud, I know it's really chaotic. Hey, you have the presence, even of the Father here with you. The way the Bible talks is that Jesus died in our place to make us right with God, and he gave us a new heart. No covenant promise was that God's going to take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So the Bible uses language like, like Christ is in us, like the Spirit is, is in us. So he couldn't be closer to you. One of the comforts this passage gives us when it comes to having hope in the present as we face anxiety is the presence of God himself. Okay, you might go, that sounds great, but I live in the real world. I mean, that's nice. It's not a childhood deal with thunderstorms. These are real stresses. So he puts it back in the real world for us as well. I, I think, let me be careful. Verse 1 and 2 are real. They are the real world. That will change your life if you believe that. But I know we often like feel something more, and so we want to say, but what about this pain? What about this crisis? What about these things that are really, really loud? And so the Bible is realistic about the world we live in. Look in verse 3. He goes past the rejoicing and hope that we have 
by the presence of God, and he talks about the plan of God in our suffering. So verse 3 of chapter 5, he says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame or, or disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That, that reminder there of his love is kind of the seal or the foundation. Okay, to that space where you're going, okay, having his presence is nice, but I want him just to stop this thing. Because honestly, if we had the choice, sometimes we would choose stopping of the pain over God's presence. Like you say, if I could either make this thing go away or just know he was with me, I would choose it going away. The great news, you don't have to choose. But what you do see is that God comes into the situation that you're facing. And the comfort that we have in the present time with our anxieties is that God has a plan. And it's an honest plan. It's not a cynical plan that goes off the rails into despair, but it's honest about our suffering. So, so it kind of scratches the record, right? You could rejoice in the hope of God's presence with you, but then he says, hey, that's only one ground for your hope. Let me give you another one. Not only that God is with you, verse 3, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to believe. This is one of those places where you're like, for real? Because I want to avoid suffering. I want to manage it. I want to get out of it. I want to do something to make it stop. And this text says, because of what Christ has done, you can not only rejoice in his presence and have hope in his glory, but you can actually rejoice in your sufferings. And he says, because you understand that this suffering has, has a plan, none of it is meaningless. Think about the anxiety you feel, both of feeling alone, but also like wondering what to do and is there any purpose to this? Like, this, the pain, is it just random? Is it just something that happens to people and there's no kind of recourse, there's no direction, there's no ultimate means or plan or redemption to this thing? You have question marks in your story going, what do I do with that? How does that, how does that fit? And what God's doing is not saying it fits once you can see all the conclusion. What he's saying is it fits as it's happening. So check in verse 3, he says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces Endurance. So he's going to walk through a progression here with us. He's going to say these sufferings, these things, and whether they're personal or they're corporate, whether they're things that you did that's why it's suffering or things that have been done to you, it's a generic word for suffering. These, these sufferings that you face know that they produce endurance, that they have purpose. There's, there's direction. There's meaning to them. And what they produce inside of you is, is endurance or perseverance. You could actually translate this word as as focus or single-mindedness. He's saying the suffering that you face has this clarifying effect on you of what you need, of your own sufficiency, of the grace that's available to you, of the fact that our world can't actually protect and hold you. It has a way of focusing you in your pain to say there's something that suffering does that opens my eyes to what is real. Just think about where you normally go in suffering. What you normally do to soothe, what you normally do to try to leverage how you'll manipulate, how you'll minimize. Because you've got like lots of options when it comes to suffering, right? You might deny that it's real. You might minimize it. You might just suck it up and avoid it, stuff it down and pretend it's not there. Whether that was your childhood pain or your present pain or what's happened in your disappointment as an adult, you might have the temptation simply just to deny it. You might engage suffering as something that you deserve, like you did this. This is what people like you get. 
because of what you've done, because of your inconsistencies. And if you think that God loves you because of what you do, this is a really, really dangerous place to be. If you think God's favor and his love and his blessing and even salvation come to you if you're good enough, then suffering shatters that whole deal. All the points go away. Everything that you've rallied around just fades and gets drained and you're back down to zero because if God loves you because of your goodness and your suffering, the logic is you're not very good. You're not doing enough. And some of you have heard that voice your whole life and it has you grasping and striving and leaning, trying to do more and more and more to prove yourself. So so you can deny it. You can think that you deserve it. But what Paul wants to say is, no, no, there's actually a design in the suffering. God, God is doing you good in ways that actually produce hope. We don't just rejoice in these sufferings, but we rejoice in them because they produce endurance or focus or single-mindedness. They, they remind us of what is most true, that, that pornography doesn't actually comfort, that, that lashing out on anger won't actually fix the situation, that I can't actually have enough money to protect myself. I can't leverage enough relationships so that I'm finally valuable. All the things that I'm tempted to look at to make myself okay, suffering has a way of clarifying the lens and focusing and saying, no, no, none of that is real. It's all, it's all a kind of illusion. And to live like you could protect yourself with enough of X, suffering moves towards it and it brings an endurance, a perseverance, a focus, a single-mindedness. I don't know about you, but I think the pandemic has done that. Right? You had to think about your job and what was most essential. You had to think about how you're going to get through this thing when maybe your, maybe your pay got cut by 30% and all of a sudden things you thought you had to have, you had to renegotiate and think about maybe as an employer you had to let some people go you think about the jobs that you you wish you had that you didn't have as you graduated because those whole industries have evaporated there's places where, where you thought you would have something that would finally give you value and significance and worth and suffering has taken that away covid has taken a lot of that illusion away hey as is the suffering that we face even as a church One of the things I love about our community is that we have 60 years of pain behind us. And and I'm not like a masochist, I don't like love pain, but we are a different kind of people because of the suffering that our body has endured. Hey, these people in this room who've been here for 60 years have stories of God's faithfulness. They've seen him not just be there, but provide, and they can trace some dots now of how he used their pain and their hurt in ways that changed them. And they wouldn't say things like, I I want that pain, but they would say things like, if I had to do it over again, I would do it just like this because of what God has done in me. It's the way struggling early in your marriage makes makes you lean in. It's the way a disability that you can try to overcome actually motivates you. It's ways that the pain actually clarifies. It's what Paul is saying here. So we can have joy in the middle of the suffering because God is doing something in it. And one of the things he does is, is clarifying what, what is real. So, so for our church that went through massive suffering in 2020, like the infighting and the small pettiness and my personal preferences, it feels like those things have just faded to the background. Haven't they, church family? Like we're not fighting over small things in our church because we've faced really big things and those things have clarified what's most important for us as a community. 
And you, as you maybe are visiting a church, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, is church even the place that's probably rooted in some sort of crisis or disappointment or some sort of shaking, and you're getting to ask, hey, what's most important? Like, I thought I had this thing, whether it's an, as an, not a follower of Jesus, you thought you had your life figured out, and now you realize there's a loneliness and a sadness and a shame you can't shake, and so you're wondering if there's more. But maybe you're part of another spiritual community as well, and as that place shook and you find yourself now looking for a new home, it's clarifying for you what's most important. All right, so, so Jesus has a plan for your suffering, and that affects how you think about the anxiety in the present space. And you can have hope for your present anxiety because God is not wasting what's happening. There, there's a plan. And it's not just a plan of like it's going to make it all better and the sun's going to come out and it's going to get 10 times what you used to have. It's an internal thing that God does. Now, sometimes there are external blessings, but the primary focus here is what he's doing inside of you. And he moves from this focus, this single-mindedness of endurance and perseverance to character. He's shaping what you love and what you long for and who you are. This is, has the sense of like a testedness and our triedness. It's, it's real close. They're connected for sure. It means that when you've gone through stuff, it's changed you. So next time you go through something similar, you have like a different posture towards it. It's the way somebody who was in a war for a long time has just like learned how to navigate that different than somebody who just put their combat boots on the soil for the first time. It's, it's the way a person 30 years into their marriage has a sense of God's faithfulness and the way they kind of navigate that than, than after you leave the altar. It's, it's a way that you've gone through things like even miscarriages and infertility and you've, you've walked through those spaces that now get you in a spot where you've seen God kind of shape you and change you. And you've got some hope. There's a, there's a testedness about you. In a small way, I was talking to uh, Stephen Ellison, who's from Alabama. I was talking to him about the championship game. And he was talking about when that receiver went down. And I, I don't care. I can't name it. He could name it right now. But he said, yeah, I mean, what do you expect? We had three true freshmen as receivers in the championship game against the best defense in the universe. Of course, we're not going to win. I, I don't know how you feel as an Alabama fan, but that was his take on that. But I remember him saying, oh, yeah. These 18-year-olds, of course you throw them on the biggest stage they've ever been at, they're going to struggle. Why? Because they've not been tested yet. But you throw somebody as a fifth-year senior in that spot who's faced adversity, it's just a little bit different. Ladies, I know like football illustrations like just evaporate real fast, but you can maybe condescend to that and just understand what the female version of that would be for you, right? There's a testedness that happens as you've gone through stuff. So, so Paul just says, hey, there's a plan here. These sufferings produce a focus in single-mindedness that they test your character, they change you, and that produces hope because you know God's the kind of God who's gotten you through those kind of moments, who showed up in those spaces, and the getting you through it isn't just fixing it, it's his presence in that, and that now has teeth and heft and some sort of gravity and weight for you. Suffering does something inside of us when it comes to our present sufferings, and believing that there's a plan changes you. Believing there's a plan in the middle of that suffering actually changes you. So I've thought a lot about grief and sadness and loss in this season. And what I love about the scriptures is God's not hiding at all the struggles of his people. You you can't read the Bible as propaganda to like the better life. It's honest, but what you need in the next life and how God wants to meet you in this life, but it's full of all kinds of broken stories. By design, that's both how the world really works, and it's also an invitation to you to bring your brokenness into 
God's story. But, but one that struck out to me in this season is the story of Joseph, who went through all kinds of pain and pressure. He had his own stuff, right? He's a little bit cocky, he's a little bit arrogant, he mouths off to his brothers. But throwing him into a well and then selling him into human trafficking and slavery is a little extreme for a mouthy little brother. So he's trafficked as a person, as a slave, right? He finds his way, kind of working his way up, and he's falsely accused of sexual abuse. And the woman who actually pursued him accused him, so he winds up in jail for a really, really, really long time. People say they're going to help him, and they don't, they don't help him. He's there in the dark for a long, long time. Think, think like decades of suffering and pain and disappointment that this dude faced. He has this moment where he's remembered. God gives him interpretation of a dream. In a number of years now, he finds himself favored with Pharaoh, and he's number two in command of all of Egypt. It's this amazing turnaround story. And then at the end of the book, his family comes into Egypt for help. Here's this moment now. He has all the power. He could do whatever he wants. And if you're watching this movie, you wonder what he's going to do to these brothers who so harmed him and stole decades of his life. In that moment, he's able to say to them, hey, what you meant as evil, God meant to me as good. Okay, since I was a middle school kid and came to faith, I've known that story as, hey, God's doing good even though people do things evil. Keep going. That's the way I've heard it. What I missed in that story is that twice the text tells us Joseph has to leave the courtroom, falls apart, and just weeps. He's not just saying in a plastic way, God has good plans. He engages with his whole heart the suffering and the loss of what it means to live in a fallen, broken world. And the plans that God has are things about the inside of us that are transforming us. And the Bible gives us space not to get cynical, but to be honest about the hurt that we have. He, he is number two in command. He can do whatever he wants. And what he chooses to do is weep. He just cries. And it's not seen as a lack of faith. It's not seen as weakness. It's honest about the pain that he's experienced. Friends, the Bible says that you can endure present suffering and face anxiety in front of you because God has a plan. But that is not a plastic plan. It has tons of jagged edges and there's lots of hurt and weeping is appropriate in the middle of it. And I would say even in that grieving, which we've learned in this season, Grieving is a super important part of you actually experiencing the presence of God. Because if you deny the pain, you actually can't bring that hurt to Jesus. And the things that are not brought to Jesus cannot be healed by Jesus, right? There's an invitation in this plan that God is doing to bring your heart to God to actually be healed. So, so there's a presence that God gives us of himself. There's a plan in the middle of it. And then he goes into provision. Because the question you should be asking is, what kind of a God does that? He can do whatever he wants. Why does he not just pass out candy from the float parade? Why, why does he actually do it like this? He didn't have to do it like this. You should ask yourself as you hear this text, what kind of a God treats his people like that? Creates a plan like that? Let's the fallen, broken world unravel like this. Whether it's the details of your life or just looking back over the global history of humanity, it's appropriate to say, what kind of a God does that? Here's the beautiful thing. Paul goes, yeah, yeah, I know that's your question. Let me tell you what kind of God he is. Look in verse 6. For while we were still weak, and this weakness is a moral weakness, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When you were unable to save yourself, when you were weak, and then he breaks his thought. 
For one might scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, morally weak, his enemies hating him, distant from him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son, how much more now that we've been reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What kind of a God in the face of suffering and pain and anxiety says to people, hey, you can have hope because I'm with you. You can have hope because it's not meaningless. I have a plan. What kind of a God does that? The kind of God who dies in his enemy's place. And think through all your movies and all the things that you've read in books. People don't die for their enemies. Now, they might show mercy to their enemy, but they don't have a sacrificial death for their enemy. And I would guess where they do, those are Christ figures in those movies and in those books. Because logically, you would never do that. What kind of a God sets up these kinds of sufferings to teach people things, to refocus them, to show them his faithfulness? What kind of a God would do that with my life, would play games with my life just to conform me to his image? Are you kidding me? Oh, the kind of God who dies in your place. What Paul's doing is answering the question that we have in the midst of suffering. Is God actually good? Does he see? Does he love me? Is he here? Does he care? And by saying he died in your place, it's this declaration and this foundation you can build your life on because God's made provision in your suffering for your biggest problem. While you were unable to do anything at the right time when you were totally hopeless and you understood that in that space, Christ died for you to make you right with God. And what that resulted in was joy and reconciliation. It wasn't just a legal thing where he just wiped away your debt. He actually made it possible for you to be in this relationship. So we come full circle back to that first point of his presence. God made it possible for you to be in his presence without facing his wrath by bearing your wrath himself. He saved us from the wrath of God by bearing it. And that's how we can have hope in this world. So the past and the present and the future, they all blend together. Look in verse 10. He says this, for while we were enemies in the past, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled in the present, shall we be saved by his life in the future? It all blurs together in a really confusing but beautiful way that God is not wasting your past. He's with you in the present and he promises you a future. And that is secure and rested in what Christ has done for you. So when it comes to your anxiety, you're not alone. It, it's not meaningless. And God is not ripping you off. He's not unfair. He's not absent. He's actually sacrificing himself on your behalf to move towards you. And that changes how you experience anxiety. So you just think for a moment, right? You could stay in hard places knowing God was with you, knowing he was doing something in this. It wasn't wasted and meaningless. And knowing that he'd already solved your biggest problem. You could forgive those who've harmed you and hurt you because you've already been forgiven. God's already absorbed your sin and penalty. You could actually then extend that to other people. You, you could ask for forgiveness. 
You can move towards people who you've hurt in this season as you try to cope with the anxiety you feel in the present. And instead of pushing towards God for hope, you try to create your own sort of little hope, lowercase h, hope, in ways that hurt other people. You can now move towards them, whether it's your roommate or it's your spouse or it's your children or your adult children or your parents. You could move towards them and say, hey, would you please forgive me? And you could have confidence in that place because Christ has already forgiven you and borne the wrath of that thing. You could stay in hard places. You could ask for forgiveness. You could, you could grant forgiveness. And you could keep going in the middle of it, knowing that God has more he wants to do inside of you. He's not finished with you yet. So to that anxiety, we apply the sacrificial death of Christ, and it radically changes everything. There's massive application and implication to that. So what I want to do now is we take communion, which is this remembrance. It's this symbol. It's this moment where we say, hey, he took my place and his body was broken and his blood was shed. Hey, and like you, I'm like, oh man, I wish we could come forward and have somebody say it to us and we'd take that bread and dip in the cup. But let's just let those little bitty individual cups represent the significance of what Christ has done. Right? This thing is so small. It represents something so massive that Christ shed his blood and he broke his body on your behalf. That's the promise for Christians. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. What you've heard this morning as we've sung songs, as we've talked about being a church family, as we've talked about the hope we have in suffering is that God actually loves you and he cares for you. Maybe today you're ready to trust him for the first time. If that's you, man, I'd love to talk to you after the service. And if that's you for the first time, take communion with us. But if you're not ready yet, would you just sit in your seat? The back of that bulletin should have some prayers on it that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray and ask for God to speak to you. So, so just sit and pray where you are. We're going to sing two songs and then I'll send us out with a benediction. But as we sing and as you take communion, as you pray in your seat, would you just ask God to speak to you for the present anxieties that you feel and apply his presence, his plan, and his provision of reconciliation for you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Would you help us now as we engage together remembering your sacrifice? Would you fill the room with joy and fill it with hope, the hope that's promised in this passage as we remember what you've done and who you are. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.